Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest today is Head of Partner Marketing and Strategy for Video and Sound Products at Sony Corporation of America, Jordy Freed. First of all, Spotify has come out with a lot of info on its Loud and Clear website. Info about what, you're probably thinking. Well, mostly about how much money artists are making from Spotify. Believe it or not, there are 1,060 artists that made a million dollars or more last year on Spotify. There were 10,000 artists that generated $100,000 or more. These include artists from over 100 countries. There are 57,000 that generated $10,000 or more, and a quarter of these are indie artists. And not only that, 35% live outside the 10 biggest countries. As a matter of fact, the 50,000 highest earner made $12,584 last year. A figure that blew my mind was there were 281,000 songs that streamed over a million times on Spotify last year. Also, Spotify now considers you a heritage artist if 80% of your songs are at least five years old. Sort of makes everybody feel old at that point. And I think this is kind of ominous. 15% of all the tracks on Spotify generated 95% of all the royalties. Now, Spotify thinks that artists actually made four times that amount from a combination of other streaming services, merch, and ticket sales. And at least some of that is probably true. What is absolutely true, though, is that there are more people making more money from Spotify than you probably thought. If you have any comments or questions, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Mixing Engineer's Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on mixing and immersive audio, self-mastering, new mixer interviews, and much more. Get your copy at a special discounted price at bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. That's bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. And remember, you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Now, lately, I've been getting a lot of questions about what makes up the sound of the 80s. Well, if we just want to look at some gear, when it comes to synthesizers, the Prophet 5 and the Oberheim OB-8 are a big part of that sound, but even more so is the Lindrum, which was a big breakthrough at the time. This was the brainchild of Roger Lynn, who was an engineer for Leon Russell, but also he was a guitar player and a hit songwriter as well. Now, consider that the first drum machines actually came out in the 1950s, and they were things like the Chamberlain Rhythm Mate and the Wurlitzer Sideman, and then a little later, the Eco Compute Rhythm, which is the first programmable drum machine. Then Roland kind of hit the big time with the CompuRhythm CR78. The problem was none of these sounded like real drums. They were all electronic. So in 1979, the Lindrum actually had real samples that were stored on EEPROM chips, it also had a good sequencer and individual audio outputs. Of course, Roger Lynn was an engineer. He knew what engineers wanted. The problem with that original unit is there were no cymbals because they just could not fit that length on an EEPROM. 
1982, though, Rogers came out with the LM1, which is a little bit cheaper and had EPROMs at more storage, so there actually were symbols. Rogers' company didn't survive the decade, though, but Roger went on to develop the really wildly popular MPC-60 for Akai. There were a lot of hits that used his drum machine, though. Prince hits like When Doves Cry and Kiss, hits from Madonna, hits on Michael Jackson's Thriller. It was all over the top 40 back then. Today, we have Lindrum emulations. There's a good one from Ableton. It's in their drum machines pack. Allie James Lab V-Prom is also a full-on recreation. There's Lindrum from Mars. There's Drum Keto. There's a lot of really good Lindrum emulations if you really want to get that 80s throwback sound. There are a lot of devices that made it sound 80s, but the Lindrum was a big part of it. My guest this week is head of partner marketing and strategy for video and sound products at Sony Corporation of America. That's Jody Freed. A talented sax player who considered becoming a professional musician, the Philly native got his start as a music publicist for DL Media, then held marketing and PR roles at Blue Note, and then made a quick foray into advertising at the top firm Gray. Upon returning to Blue Note in 2016, he partnered with Sony on the creation of New York City's Sony Hall, which is the first venue to feature Sony's immersive music experience, 360 RA. This led to an in-house position at Sony, where he became the first U.S. employee on their brand and business development team. In this role, he's overseen collaborations with Doja Cat, Pink, Lil Nas X, Pharrell Williams, and Alicia Keys. He's also struck deals to reimagine the David Bowie catalog in 360 RA, and he's led the company's partnership with Amazon Music and much more. He now leads marketing and business development for 360 RA, as well as all global branding activities for a host of sound products. During an interview, we spoke about getting started in music PR, working at the famous Blue Note Club, the latest on the Sony 360 RA immersive format, and much more. I spoke with Jordy via Zoom from his office at Sony. start at the beginning uh give me some of your background i know you're a sax player and i'm sure you have a, a rich musical history from your past yeah i haven't played in a long time um but saxophone was the gateway right so i started when i was what fifth grade sixth grade and quickly got hooked onto jazz uh it helped to have a father who was an audiophile um yeah, and I was really serious um, through middle school and high school, but just really immersed in jazz. And um, when I hit college, I just realized, you know, don't really want to pursue this as a performer. Uh, love to make a career working in music, you know, uh, on the other side, wh whatever that is. I didn't know what it was at the time. And um, I stumbled into PR. <laughs> and that's really how it began, wow. honestly. Yep. Uh, PR for music? PR for music. Uh, I was 18. Yeah. Well, and uh, that that's really how it started. What was that gig? A uh, company called DL Media, a um, music PR firm based in Philly that was really well known in the jazz space and repped some of the best jazz musicians. And for someone who was into jazz, it was perfect, right? Um, I had this knowledge um, and, you know, 
there was just an aptitude for it uh, based on my, I was always outgoing, good writer, good communicator. And I didn't really realize that those skills lended themselves well to being a publicist until I started doing it. And uh, I did that through undergrad. So uh, I started when I was 18, I was a freshman college and I split time between uh, undergrad and, and working full time uh, as a publicist. And then when you graduated, did that stop? When I graduated, I had four years of experience at that time. <laughs> um, and I, I did that for another year and then things got really interesting career-wise. So I actually took a little U-turn. It was a really well-known agent in the business uh, who I respected and I did a lot of work with while I was a publicist and, and he hired me and I actually moved to Boston to try and become an agent. And then I realized, I was like, you know what, this is not for me. And that I ended that very quickly, like within a month. Um, and I was trying to figure out my next move. And it was between, between a record label in Los Angeles and uh, the Blue Note in New York City. And I thought I wanted to go to L.A. I was ready to go to L.A. And then I made a last minute change. I was like, you know what? I've been going up to New York every week for the past four or five years. I have friends there. I know, L I know New York close to home. I, I want to be in New York. So I moved to New York nine years ago, January 2014. And I started as director of marketing PR at the Blue Note, New York. Uh, and I was 23 years old. That's pretty cool. That's a famous venue. That's yep. pretty amazing. Yeah. So w when I got to the Blue Note, I, I was, so I did two stints at the Blue Note. First stint was director of marketing PR. Was there for like a year and nine months. Learned a ton. Like I really cut my marketing chops at, in at the Blue Note. Before I was doing PR, I was starting to get into marketing, but I really became a marketer at the Blue Note. But towards the end of that first run, I was ready for a change. You know, I, I was doing like, it was almost six years, seven years, eh, six years in the music industry at that point. And I was starting to get exposure to like brand PR, brand marketing, corporate and I actually fell in and left the Blue Note for a job at Gray Advertising. Ah, well, that's a big difference. Big difference. And I was hired to do PR for the National Park Service Centennial Campaign, among other activities. And it was completely eye-opening experience to just get that different perspective. I, I, I think as my interests were going, it's funny, like as each year passed, I became less and less interested in jazz and more and more interested in marketing and PR and, you know, brands, right? It just evolved from like jazz to, you know, that. And that experience at Gray was just transformative for me. Um, I actually was not there very long. I, I was there less than a year. And then I went back to the Blue Note, you know, a role as VP of um, strategic marketing PR and biz dev for the Blue Note. The time at Gray gave me a vision for what I wanted to do with the Blue Note brand. And some of my most productive years really happened right after Gray in my second stint at Blue Note. So I did an, a four-year stint in my second stint at the Blue Note from 2016 to 2020. And those are some of the most productive years of my career. Okay, Jordy, so I'm curious. So you, you go to Gray and you're learning marketing from a different perspective, for sure, from a more traditional perspective. How did you bring that to Blue Note then? So I was in a really interesting division of Gray called uh, Activation and PR, right? 
And yeah, I was in a PR role, but it was an integrated marketing team, meaning, you know, it's not gray. Most people think of gray as traditional ad agency, right? They make commercials. Well, with the trends in the advertising industry, these firms over the years have really had to diversify for digital, um, for the needs of experiential. And this, this um, division was focused on where there's the intersection of a traditional campaign with experiential activation, like events, and how you amplify that with PR, and how you do UGC content with consumers, through set, like, and how that's all integrated to tell a brand story through partnerships, talent, et cetera. And that was really intriguing to me. And what it really gave me perspective on was how to approach brand development for the Blue Note from that kind of perspective, right? You know, most people think of the Blue Note, they think, okay, it's the shows that you go to. And that's true. But the brand itself means something as well. What does that brand mean? What does it represent? So how do you take that brand and grow the brand among a wider share outside of the people who just go for the artist? And, and a lot of the data was showing us at the time when we started this, a lot of people that went to those shows weren't necessarily going for the artists. They were going for the brand. They were going because, hey, they know the Blue Note. They want to see jazz. They want a, a great, unique experience. Um, and then with my PR background, I also knew how media was changing in terms of, you know, like if you're looking at PR, the impressions you're going to get from X or Y outlet, they don't exist anymore. So where are you going to find that share of voice? What other channels are you going to tap into? Who else is going to tell your story? So it really evolved into this kind of unique mutt of sorts between brand marketing, PR, and business development to further the brand. And it started as more kind of PR and actually turned into a business. <laughs> so it was really brokering partnerships between Blue Note and companies outside of the music industry to tell stories and further whatever they were trying to do. So some examples are like putting the Blue Note with Intel or putting the Blue Note with uh, Seagram's Gin for activations all throughout Spain for several years or um, putting the Blue Note with the European Union government and the, dele the delegation to the United Nations for a cultural series, right? Mm -hmm. You know, or, or doing deals with you know, NHK broadcasting in Japan for furthering 8K development in that market, you know, by licensing content and brokering a content deal, right? Things like that, where each of those partnerships through those relationships has strategic value in terms of furthering the Blue Note brand among different constituencies, um, maybe even um, pushing the limits to test certain, you know, business assumptions for, hey, does Blue Note want to open in Spain? Well, great. We can test that market with this partner through a pop-up for four months in Madrid, right? Things like that. What I didn't realize when I started all this was, okay, it can also make money too. <laughs> but we it 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 wasn't, it's not sponsorship. It's not sale. It's these are partnerships where there's value exchange. So I basically started this from scratch. It didn't exist when it, when I joined or re rejoined. And it was really inspired by the work that I did at, at Gray. And really, it all kind of culminated with one really, really big deal um, in partnership with Sony. 
And that is for the opening of, uh, that was the opening of Sony Hall yeah. in Times Square, which, I mean, that that changed everything for me personally. Um, that's what led you to a job at Sony then, right? And that's really what led me to my current job and started the relationship with Sony. I mean, I ironically, so like I, I, I had worked with Sony Music as a publicist for Sony Music Masterworks prior, but obviously Sony Music is just one of our divisions, right? You know, I was never working with Tokyo. I was never working with, you know, headquarters. Yeah. And that changed when uh, I brokered this partnership. I read somewhere that you had traveled to Cuba and China, whatever, and I assume that's part of the Blue Note branding exercise that you're doing. Yeah, um, join Blue Note, see the world was kind of my motto. No. <laughs> you know, all in the service. No, but I, I mean, Blue Note's an international brand. So, you know, you people forget that, you know, you have venues all around the world. You have, you know, a few in China, Beijing, Shanghai that were there, um, two in Brazil, uh, Italy. Um, you, you have these venues around the country and the world. Uh, you have tourists coming from around the world to go to these different locations when they travel. It's a travel experience, right? Wherever you go, it's a global brand. The reason why I bring it up is I've been to Cuba three times. and uh, You're the first person I've ever met who's also been to Cuba three times. Oh, you've been there three? Yeah. I've been there three times, yes. I love it. I love the people. I love it. It's fantastic. I go back in a second. Yep. I, I had one of the best musical experiences of my life there. I was sitting one night at a cafe outdoors at the uh, Plaza Vieja. Yep. And uh, there's a, a band playing. And as you know, they're all great. Just unbelievable musicians. And it's incredible musicianship there. Unbelievable. Yeah. And the singer said, uh, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Los Angeles. Oh, we're going to play you a Hollywood song. And they started to play Be My Baby by the Ronettes, only salsa style. And it was just fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. And I can remember just sitting there in a summer night drinking a beer and, and listening to this and thinking, it doesn't get any better than this. Yeah. 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 I mean, there's a spirit down there that you feel that it's hard to describe if you've never, like, for, for, for people who've never been there, right? It, you can't really describe it in words. It's just a feeling you get. There's something about being there. Yeah. I, I know you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Oh, it, yeah. It's just hard to put your finger on it. Yeah. I love I love it there, but yeah, I mean the, these these opportunities and these partners were all around the world, and it was just an incredible. I'm so grateful for that opportunity to have really seen a lot of the world through that kind of lens. Well, uh, let's move up to Sony here. So you started with branding, right? Branding and biz development, and then eventually you got to 360 RA. So it actually started with 360. Oh, okay. Believe it or not. Yeah. And this was right when COVID hit. <laughs> so that was interesting. But yeah, it, it's, it started with 360 and that's still a key focus for us, for sure. Building off of 360, we're doing some really interesting things um, on the product side with artists. So, you know, we, we finally have a slate of some engagement with talent around some of our temple products. Like... Um, you know, Khalid working with our WH-1000X Mark V flagship noise canceling over your headphones. You know, artists like SZA working with us on the LinkBuds S right now in market. 
uh, working with legacy artists like Whitney Houston's estate associated with the WH1000X Mark V. And really, at the end of the day, we we are interested in really supporting artists, what they're trying to do, and delivering incredible music experiences for our fans. And when I say our fans, I mean the people who own our products and listen to their favorite music. We want them to feel like it's the best music experience they're going to get. Obviously, you know, a live show is a different situation, but when they're at home streaming or listening, however they're listening, to use one of our products, we want to bring them closer to the artists. How how we do that from a storytelling standpoint is really important. You know, the artists that we work with and the stories that we tell around those artists and their new albums and new music. We're, we're really a brand for music right now in the audio space more than anything else. Okay, let's talk about storytelling for a second and telling the story of 360RA. And I think this is one of the big problems of immersive in general, because unless you hear it, you can't explain it. You know what I mean? It's one of those things where you could talk and talk and talk about it, but it's abstract. So it's, in my eyes, difficult to market. I haven't seen anyone do it well yet. So what what do you think on that? It's still new. I mean, this is still, if you look at the history of uh, audio formats, how long it takes for the development adoption for every single format. It takes time. People are resistant to change. That's with any format, for for any anything you do, anything you introduce, anytime you introduce a revolutionary idea, it sometimes takes time to, to develop. And, and back to the storytelling piece, I think the one unique advantage to this, even compared to what we may have done in the past for other formats, is you talk about the nature of it being abstract. It is a fundamentally uh, different experience. You You can actually say that. You know, I, I think for other uh, endeavors we, we've looked at and others for that matter, outside of immersive or spatial, right? It becomes, okay, like how many bit rates or quality or all of that. And and to the average consumer, you know, you do question, I'm not saying this that this is the case, but the feedback sometimes you get is, or the question you get, can I hear the difference for like high res or things like that? It's a different value proposition with spatial and immersive. It's fundamentally different. It's it's not a, about, I mean, there is a quality element for sure, but the value proposition is quality and the nature of the experience itself. So when you talk about that and say, you will hear X artists like never before, there it, it can actually be backed up because it's tangible and experiential in how the consumer is listening. And then I think when you add the ease of use, so I, I think in, a, in the past, you know, for, for other formats or things like that, special gear being required. I, I think what's interesting about spatial is the ease of use to be able to put on any pair of headphones, as long as you're on a platform that supports the format and the music is mixed to be able to get that experience. I, I don't think for any other new proposed format or experience, it's been as turnkey. In the past, you've needed special gear or things like that. But, you know, when, when we've launched 360, we want it to be as accessible as possible for people. You know, the idea that someone can go onto Amazon Music Unlimited, put on any pair of headphones, not just Sony headphones, you know, and listen to that best of 360 playlist and hear it right away. 
I don't know how much easier we can make it. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, Jordy, one of the things I worry about is that, yes, you can hear the difference right away, but there's a fine line between it being really great and being a parlor trick. I'm sure you've heard lots of mixes where you go, oh, I don't know if that's better than the stereo mix, or it's it's worse than the stereo mix, and it's obvious right away. So I worry that people that are first exposed to it are not exposed to something that's really great that will knock their socks off. You know what I mean? I will say there are mixes where we've had a lot of engagement with the artists and their team that are truly exceptional and have been recognized as such. So for example, we actually won, uh, or we didn't win, Alicia Keys won a Grammy for best immersive audio album at last year's Grammys for her album, Alicia. And we worked with her team on this to reimagine not only that album, but the entire catalog. And they spent two years on this. Who mixed it, by the way? Ann Mincelli, so her longtime engineer, mm -hmm. yeah. And Anne won, won a Grammy for that with her core team. And, you know, it, it's projects like those that it's an extremely personal process for the artist. There, I mean, you're talking about artists that they're getting into each and every song and, you know, starting from scratch to reimagine the content in that way. And I will say in, in those cases, it's, um, it's pretty powerful. I, you know, to be clear... I mean, let's be honest, not every content is is done in that way. Um, but we are seeing a lot of that where the artists are really wanting to get involved and their teams want to get involved and they want to get hands on to recreate. But I think it comes back to the point I made earlier that, you know, this is still early days and this is still growing. And there's a lot of education and a lot of best practice development that people like Alicia's team are you know, working through this material and, and discovering opportunity um, for, for creation. And and so, I, I mean, the thing I would say would be it, it just continues to evolve. And there is a lot of incredible content out there. You know, it's funny. I heard recently, uh, I went to a showcase for the Beatles Revolver done in, in, in Atmos. And, and I was worried about it <laughs> because when they did um, uh, Sergeant Pepper, it was like, eh, I don't know that it's better, but Giles and his team really did a great job. And it was because they were very, what's the best word, gentle with how they used everything. And it just sounded bigger and wider and it was better. Yeah. And, and that's a perfect example. I, I haven't heard that content, but it's, you know, we see similar scenarios to your point earlier and my point that th this is an uh, evolutionary process, right? And, you know, creators are developing the, the best ways to maximize what those experiences are with the technology, because everyone's learning this kind of for the first time, right? You know, um, and, and that's part of it. Yeah, but, you know, there are some labels that won't be mentioned here that are now just handing out stems to the lowest bidder. And the stems being, well, there, there's not that much you can do with just stems to begin with. And second of all, what they want is they want you to stay as true to the stereo mixes as before. I, I understand that. But again, the, and I know this for a fact because I know some of the people that are getting these gigs and I think, you're not even a mixer. How does this happen? And these are big artists. 
as well. They're major artists that don't have a say in this. So what again, I come back to the worry of now you have a fan that suddenly gets something that's supposed to be so much better, and in fact it's not, or it's not that much better, or it's worse than before, and that turns them off. It's a worry for me. I, I definitely, I hear you. I can't speak to how the labels assign those mixes. Uh, at the end of the day, the labels are the content owners, and it's not our place to to tell any label how they should handle their their workflows or anything like that. You know, uh, and, and I obviously can't speak to any of those examples or anything like that. But what what I can say is. For, for what we get involved in when we look at collaboration, the, the trend is refinement. There's a lot of refinement happening and a lot more education happening too. And that does take time. So I, I just, you know, I, I probably have to reinforce that point yeah. because it, I, we're seeing it. We just keep seeing more and more engagement with a lot of really incredible engineers we want to get under the hood with us and and uh, artist teams that want to work with us too. Yeah, let's go there for a second, Jordy. So Dolby Atmos has, a, I don't know if I want to say it's a big jump start, but in fact, it's a visibility head start for sure. And I always hear of 360 RA is almost like an afterthought. Where When I looked at it myself, I thought, this feels like a much more comfortable setup to me, you know, just as a, as a mixer looking at it, thinking, oh, okay, yeah, this, this feels better. But yet there's, there's not the same buzz. Why? I, so so for, for context, we launched 360 Reality Audio in, in 2019. Yeah, so, so we, we made the announcement in 2019. We did the launch in 2019. And we started really the, the engagement in 2020. Obviously, 2020 is a really unique year in world history. Yeah, <laughs> for for a variety of reasons, you know. So, you know, for for context, I, I would call that out. Um, just because at the end of the day, you need to kind of think about okay, when when did this this all start? So so we've been growing it since then, and and we have made a lot of introductions and improvements and things that are very relevant to the ecosystem. Like for example, audio video for live content in 2021, I believe. Yeah, 2021, we did an activation with Zara Larson. Uh, last year we did a live stream with the David Bowie state. Um, you know, so I, the, the point I would make is in light of COVID, there actually has been quite a bit of progress in growing this ecosystem and the capabilities. And to win a Grammy, too, within with Alicia's team, within a two-year period, within that category for a new entrant in the market, we're seeing a lot of momentum. I think at the end of the day, the thing that we're interested in is these creator engagements. Not just artists, but the engineers and producers in the studios. And, you know, to be able to work with people like Greg Penny, for example. and I know Greg you know, well, yeah. Yeah, like who we, we, he got nominated for the Harry Styles uh, Fine Line album in 360. Yeah. It was only available in 360. So we actually had two nominations last year. We had Alicia Keys and, and Harry Styles, both in 360 only. Uh, Alicia won two different mixers, right? 
So, yeah, I mean, I, I can't speak to, you know, competitors or, you know, where they sit or stand. I, I, I can speak to there's been a lot of growth. There's a lot more growth to do, no question. But I, I think the biggest thing, too, is like we're, we're really interested in working with these engineers to get feedback on improvements, workflow, refinement, creative best practices. That, that's what we're interested in. You know, we're interested in engaging this community to figure out how to further it. You know, you, you can talk about, okay, like buzz and, and all of that, and, and, and that's all fine. But at the end of the day, like, I, I think we're really, the product is really important. Like what, what's the product? Like, what are these, what, what, what are, what are the, what's the workflow, right? If we're really getting into it, what's the workflow? And I'm not a, on the technical side on our team. So, you know, if you want to have that conversation, that's a separate yeah, <laughs> interview yeah. you would have to do. Sure. Um, but just from a high level standpoint, you know, if you look at the product on the consumer side, you know, what's the output for some of this, these activities, if you look at the product for the um, creator, well, what's their canvas? What do they have to work with? And I still believe at the end of the day, there is a very unique value proposition to this format based on the sphere. You know, to be able to think about the sphere and a wider canvas for a an engineer to work, Northern Southern Hemisphere. The feedback we've gotten from a lot of engineers is there is a unique musicality that lends itself very well to this format. And with the right mix, and the right approach. I mean, it can be very transformative. Um, and there's been a lot of improvement too on some of the core technologies to continue to refine what that uh, experience looks like. Um, and it also helps too, you know, our partnership with Amazon Music has been very, very critical as well. I mean, the launch of 360 Reality Audio uh, for mobile, all mobile devices, iOS, Android, uh, back in October 2021, no, 20, was it 21 or 22? It's been about a year, Yeah, a little over a year. Yeah. 2021. Yeah. And we've been doing a lot of work with them in this area. So yeah, I mean, there, there's, there's room for growth for sure, but we're riding that growth right now. Yeah. Well, good to hear. All right. Last question, Jordy. What's the best piece of business advice or maybe just advice that you learned along the way or maybe somebody imparted to you? I can answer this very easily. So I look back on my career and where I've had good breaks or things that have gone my way. And it really just comes down to like one kind of motto. I've worked really, really hard to get really, really lucky. I like that. Because at the end of the day, I look back on how some of these opportunities could have gone if I didn't put in the work and I wouldn't have had that break if I didn't put in the work. You need a little luck, but the harder you work, you're you're maximizing your luck potential and you have to follow through on those opportunities. So at the end of the day, luck just like if some if something falls into someone's lap truly, that's cool, but at the end of the day, most of the really big breaks, you have to put a lot of elbow grease in for it to really become what appears to be luck on the surface. You can find out more about Sony 360RA at sony.net forward slash products forward slash create 360RA. That's sony.net forward slash products 
forward slash create360ra. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Remember that you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.